The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So Abram went, as the Lord told him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. When we as modern people get curious about a thing, we tend to ask, what is it made of? What forces brought it about? The scientific materialistic mindset has caused us to focus on the material and efficient causes of things. But people used to be more interested in asking, what does this mean? What is it for? What does it reveal about its maker and his intentions? For them, that is, the thing was a transparent pointer or point of access to a higher mind that lay beyond them. We as Christians believe that God created, that when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke them into being through his word. The consequence of this fact is that things, at least for God, must have in them something of the nature of words. That is, in the same way that we use a word to signify a thing, like I use the word pulpit to signify this thing that I'm preaching off of, God can and does use things to signify and reveal deeper unseen realities. By means of his good gifts to us in creation, God reveals himself, discloses himself to us, and draws us into relationship with himself, as Father Gritter preached to us about last week. Nowhere, perhaps, is this principle more evident than in the sacraments of the church. Most of us are probably familiar with St. Augustine's definition of a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. These pledges of God's grace or gift to us are the God-given means by which we as individual persons ritually participate in and appropriate for ourselves the grace of the saving life of Jesus Christ. Over the next several weeks, Father Gritter and I will be preaching on a series of key stories from the book of Genesis and laying out how these stories both foreshadow and illuminate the meaning of some of the church's most prominent sacraments and how we ourselves can participate in them. Beginning here in Genesis 12 and the call of Abram and how this story can shed light for us on the meaning of holy baptism. So we'll be looking at three points today of how Genesis 12 leads us into the mystery of our baptism. First of all, Abram's call to holiness Second, the holiness of Christ. And third, how we can follow in Abraham's footsteps. So, first of all, is Abram's call to holiness. The call of Abram is an iconic story, isn't it? Perhaps the archetypal story of adventure and faithfulness in the Bible. But unfortunately, it's often read as a self-contained story divorced from its wider context. This story appears in Genesis 12 only just a single chapter after we see the people of Babylon come together and proclaim, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, 
and let us make a name for ourselves. Humanity was at that time seeking through technology, hubris, and totalitarian unity to supplant gods and become gods for themselves on their own terms. Some things never change. Unsurprisingly, Babel or Babylon in the scriptures subsequently becomes symbolic of the unholy union of the world and its prince, the devil, and the wicked desires of the flesh in rebellion against God and his reign. For example, even the cities of Rome and Jerusalem in the Bible become symbolically Babylon later in the scriptures at different points of their history. Then, just before our passage begins, at the end of Genesis 11, we hear that Abram and his family is from Ur of the Chaldeans, that is, Ur of the Babylonians. The narrative is setting us up here to see Abram as growing up right under the shadow of the Tower of Babel. God is calling him to leave behind once and for all not only the physical place of Babylon, but the whole Babylonian way of life, of being, and of thinking, so that God might make of him a new people through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, amazingly, Abraham actually goes. He obeys God, despite the seeming absurdity of God's promise, despite Babylon being everything he's ever known for 75 years of his life, despite his father and many of his other family members remaining pagans in Haran, it's clear that God has made the right choice for his candidate for this honor. Then, 24 long years after Abram sets out from Haran in the land of Canaan, God would command him to physically seal that faithfulness through the covenant of circumcision. It was marking outwardly and physically what had already taken place in him inwardly and spiritually by grace. Thus, Abraham, who was faithful both before and after his circumcision, became, as St. Paul says, the father of all the faithful, both of circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles. But why circumcision of all things? Like all the sacraments of the Old and New Covenant, Circumcision is not an arbitrary commandment. It's meant, rather, to be an effective sign, both revealing and putting into effect what it signifies. An effective sign. That's a good point to remember. Fair warning here, we're about to wade into some PG-13 territory, but it's theologically significant enough to risk it, in my humble opinion. So, my apologies. So there are three important points about the sacrament of circumcision. The first and most obvious thing is that it's about cutting off excess flesh. I'm sure you can see the natural metaphor here. The male's outward circumcision was meant to be an outward invisible sign of that inward and spiritual grace. That is, circumcision of the heart. A cutting off from worldly and fleshly desires and ambitions. But if that was all there was to it, why not just have Abraham pierce his earlobe or like literally anything that might be a little less sensitive? Does God just want to inflict horrible pain on Abram so that he never forgets it? Although that seems likely enough, no, that's not it. The second important fact then about circumcision 
is that it has to be there in his generative faculty because the covenant is not just about Abram as an individual. It's about his whole family, his wife, his progeny, and everybody in his house. If you need more explanation than that, I'm not the one to give you the birds and the bees talk, but for the record, I don't recommend a Google search either. Circumcision is not an individualistic matter. It's a family affair. It signifies and puts into effect your entry into the family of God. The idea is that the circumcised male cuts his whole family off from the world, from spiritual Babylon, setting it apart to God's service and so making it holy. That's not to say the wife wasn't involved. Her sacred duty was to keep her primary domain, the home, pure and so holy and to preserve the holiness of the family. And third, when Abraham is outwardly circumcised at age 99, God gives him a new name and so a new identity. He goes from being Abram to Abraham and the meaning of his name now becomes the father of many nations. He's not just set apart for God's service from the world, but he's made the progenitor, the father of a family of God, a new nation through whom God would bring about the salvation of the whole world, eventually through his righteous seed, Christ. Subsequently, Hebrew children would receive their name when they were circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And we, as Christians, ask the godparents to name this child at their baptismal rite as they present the baby for baptism. They're receiving a new identity as they become part of this family of God. But here's our second point, the holiness of Christ. We as Christians believe that the sign of circumcision was always pointing us to Christ is the reality that this sacrament of circumcision foreshadowed. The biblical scholar Stephen DeYoung writes that when Jesus bore the curse of the tree for us at his crucifixion, when he was cut off from the people and driven out of the city of Jerusalem, something remarkable happened. It was not Jesus that was cut off from life, but the world and its prince and the evil desires of the flesh that were cut off from him, the author of life. He's the source of life. He cannot be cut off. They sawed off, rather, the very branch that they were sitting on. Although it appears to be Christ who is judged at his crucifixion, it's actually the world system. Babylon, ironically embodied in Jerusalem and its leaders, that is judged and dies. Christ, as the bridegroom, sanctifies himself, as he says in John chapter 17, and is definitively cut off from the world so that his bride, the church, might be made holy through him. And this is where baptism comes in. Baptism now, rather than circumcision, is the sacramental means whereby we, as the church, the bride of Christ, share in the holiness of Christ, the bridegroom. It is how we are cut off from spiritual Babylon, how we enter into the family of God and so become co-heirs of the promises, and how we become a new creation in Christ. It was the second century apologist Tertullian who first used the word sacramentum, 
that Latin for sacrament, in reference to Christian baptism. The sacramentum in those days was actually a sacred oath of fealty to the Roman emperor that a soldier would have to swear before going into military service. Swearing the sacramentum gave the Roman legionary a new identity, a new family, and a share in the glory of the empire. You can still see echoes of this ancient practice in our contemporary military practices. In the oath to the Constitution, for example, or in the Semper Fidelis motto of the Marines, and the way that brothers-in-arms are often bonded for life. This is in part why our baptismal covenant in the Book of Common Prayer looks the way it does. It's a declaration of spiritual war as we join the ranks of the church militant. In it, we renounce spiritual Babylon and its works, and we swear our oath of fealty to the high king of heaven, Christ, And it is a setting out in faith, like Abraham, for the true land of promise, the heavenly Jerusalem. Which brings us to our third point, following in Abraham's footsteps. Abram's story is meant to be the model or outline for our own story of faith. If we are listening, God calls each of us by name, just like he did Abram to leave behind Babylon and its ways, to embrace the adventure of faith in the family of God, the church, and to seek the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the heavenly city which God has prepared for us. You may have noticed that the baptismal font just there in the narthex, as you're passing in uh, through to the church this morning, A number of us here have a pious custom of dipping in our fingers and making the sign of the cross over ourselves as we enter the church to prepare ourselves for the liturgy. The font, standing right there on the border between the world and the church, is challenging us to remember God's personal call to us in our lives, to reaffirm our baptismal sacramentum, and to let go of everything that might still be hindering us from our heavenly homeland. As we pass by it, we can check in on ourselves to see if we are still walking in the footsteps of Abraham, asking ourselves, what do I need to leave behind me at the narthex today? Self-pity? Toxic friends? Bad habits? Worrying or obsessive thoughts? Resentment and unforgiveness? And what do I need to rededicate myself to? As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? What agreement is the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Therefore go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be as sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Many times in my life I've had to return to the font and say, this can have no place in my Christian life anymore. Solo video games? Out of the picture. Way too much a waste of time. Certain websites? I renounce them entirely. Anything that keeps me from being ready and willing to pray at all times? It's got to go. 
anything at all that threatens to be more important to me than my relationship with Christ, even if it feels closer to me than my own right hand or my eye needs to be chopped off or plucked out and cast away from me. And of course, it's still a work in progress. It will be my whole life. I still find things each week that need to be left behind at the door, at the font. Following Christ and walking in the footsteps of Abraham will mean cutting ties with Babylon. But the freedom and joy on the other side is always worth it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.